if you have an alcohol problem, an alcohol use disorder, if you suffer from alcohol addiction, the most likely outcome is recovery. That's the good news. It can take maybe three or four or five serious recovery attempts before achieving remission and recovery. But 75% of people with an alcohol use disorder will achieve remission. That's Dr. John Kelly, the first endowed professor in addiction medicine at Harvard Medical School. He's also the founder and director of the Recovery Research Institute at Massachusetts General Hospital. A clinical psychologist, Dr. Kelly's clinical and research work is focused on addiction treatment and the recovery process, mechanisms of behavior change, and reducing the stigma and discrimination associated with addiction. We'll talk about alcohol use in America, how drinking alcohol may be harming our health and well-being, even without dysfunction in our lives, and pathways to moderation or recovery. I'm Luann Heinen, and this is the Business Group on Health podcast, conversations with experts on the most important health and well-being issues facing employers. My guest is clinical psychologist Dr. John Kelly, and we're talking about alcohol use disorder. It's estimated that one-third of U.S. adults meet current diagnostic criteria for mild, moderate, or severe alcohol use disorder during their lifetime. Today's episode is sponsored by AIM Specialty Health. For more than 50% of Fortune 50 companies, AIM Specialty Health ensures employees receive best practice, affordable care across the most complex specialties, like oncology and musculoskeletal care. Hi, Dr. Kelly. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. My pleasure. Great to be here with you. Let's start by talking about the impact of COVID on uh, drinking and alcohol use in this country. You know, COVID has been with us now for more than two and a half years. Um, The way that it's affected the population and people drinking has been varied. It's been highly variable, actually, depending on different groups and different countries uh, have different experiences with the impact. So there are big, strong cultural influences, broadly speaking, on the way that COVID has affected alcohol use, uh, as well as subcultural and subgroup effects. And uh, in some countries, there has been the studies that have been done in those countries that have been reported show very little increase in use overall. In certain countries, you see some increase. In some countries, you see a little bit more on average. But of course, there are lots of subgroups within the general population that react differently, young men and women. So age and sex affects the likelihood. Also, how much you were drinking before COVID, whether you tended to drink alone versus whether you tended to drink socially in social groups. There's a number of factors which have influenced the impact of COVID on alcohol use, with some groups showing no change. In fact, the majority of people showing no change, and those people tended to be the the social drinkers anyway. An interesting uh, finding was on young people, is that young people who did not have an alcohol use disorder tended to show reductions in alcohol use, principally, we think, because the venues in which those young people drank were predominantly social venues outside of the home. And so when those were unavailable, alcohol use went down. People didn't get alcohol and bring it into the house and drink alone or with the family. Rather, the the primary stimulus for alcohol use among those young people was in bars and restaurants outside of the home. Do you agree with the common perception? We're told that drinking socially is good or okay and drinking alone is bad? Well, drinking alone is 
not necessarily bad by itself, of course, the toxicity is in the dose. So it is an indicator, a marker, a red flag, perhaps, if someone is drinking alone frequently. The question is, you know, why is that person drinking alone? Presumably, they're drinking purely for the effect of alcohol. You know, alcohol is a drug that produces different effects, euphoria, disinhibition, anxiety reduction, sedation, sleep. So people may be using it as a kind of a medication to help them escape psychologically, help to reduce anxiety or other worries they may have. Alcohol is good at that. It also produces sedation and sleep temporarily, so it can put people to sleep if they have sleep problems. But of course, it wakes them up as well once the alcohol wears off a few hours later. When you look at it just as, you know, is drinking along bad, not necessarily, but it is perhaps a risk marker. Let's talk about why people drink and when it becomes a problem. So a lot of alcohol use is culturally driven. So culture relates to the laws. So if you look in countries around the world uh, where there's a strong cultural positive attitude towards alcohol use, like in Russia, for example, in Poland, in, in Eastern Europe, uh, there's a strong tradition of alcohol use there, particularly concentrated alcohol in terms of distilled spirits. They have very high rates of casualties there in those countries. In other countries where alcohol is um, proscribed, Muslim countries is a prime example, then alcohol use is very low, of course. So there's big, strong cultural factors which influence the degree of alcohol use in a, in a given country. But if you take that, independent of that, people use for four main reasons. And this applies to really any substance, not just alcohol. But they principally use a drug like alcohol to feel good, to feel better, to do better, or because other people are doing it. Whereas we grow up in the Western world, because it is socially sanctioned, it's kind of celebrated alcohol use in many ways. It's used as part of cultural celebrations. So we see as we grow up, we see other people using it. It's kind of a cultural expectation that you might at least try it at some point in your development. There's curiosity because we see other people role modeling alcohol use. And we sometimes see the pleasurable aspects of that. Of course, a lot of downsides. That would be the reason other people are doing it. So we tend to follow suit as we grow up. Other reasons include to feel good. That's to just to escape, to get those positive effects from alcohol or to remove negative effects that we're experiencing, stress, anxiety. Alcohol can dissolve those negative aspects temporarily. The other one is performance enhancement. So uh, to do better. Sometimes we use alcohol because it helps us perform, do something that we're perhaps afraid to do when we're not under the influence of alcohol. So it can give us a little bit of extra courage that's pharmacologically induced that can enable us to do things that we wouldn't do otherwise. So it can help us disinhibit us to do things and increase performance in that way. Interestingly, when you look down the road, those are the same four reasons why people stop using alcohol. So it's interesting how the drug works in that initially we use it, and this doesn't happen to everybody, of course, but people who are more vulnerable to alcohol use disorder, alcoholism, or alcohol addiction, they're the four same four reasons why people stop, is to feel good, to feel better, to do better with other people and not doing it. So we know that over half of U.S. adults consume alcohol. How many people have a problem with alcohol, as you would define that? There's actual diagnostic criteria, of course, for alcohol use disorder. They may, individuals who may meet criteria for an alcohol use disorder may not feel they have a problem. 
it's interesting when you ask the question, you know, what, what proportion of people have a problem? It might be defined by other people. Other people oftentimes may view a person as having an alcohol problem long before the person themselves realizes that the, what they're drinking is causing problems, particularly for other people. Then we have the actual rate of alcohol use disorder in the United States, which is about 20 to 25 million people using the current diagnostic criteria, which is the DSM-5. That's the latest diagnostic set of criteria. I took a look at those criteria, and it would seem to me that a lot of people might qualify for mild alcohol use disorder. Correct. The majority of people who would meet for an alcohol use disorder would meet at the mild and moderate end of the spectrum. So you can think of these problems or the amount of alcohol involvement and alcohol-related impairment as being on a spectrum from mild to severe. I think culturally, by default, we tend to think of an alcoholic as somebody who continues to use despite harmful consequences, who can't stop. That's kind of our cultural definition. And that's true of the severe end of the spectrum. Oftentimes, people who have withdrawal symptoms, who have tremulousness and who need to drink in the morning, who are drinking no matter what, drinking despite all kinds of problems, that will be at the severe end of the spectrum. But the vast majority of people are not at that end of the spectrum. There are only about 10% of people who meet criteria for an alcohol use disorder are at the severe end. The other 90% are at the mild and moderate end. The other thing to remember as well is that you don't have to meet criteria for an alcohol use disorder for alcohol to cause harm. This is because alcohol causes harm in three different ways. One is through addiction, alcohol use disorder and addiction. And the two others are intoxication, of course, which we're all quite familiar with. Somebody getting drunk, falling down the stairs, crashing their car, getting into fights. Intoxication can lead to this inhibition and aggression in some people that can cause all kinds of problems, accidents and injuries. And then you have toxicity, which is the third pathway, which we don't often think that much about culturally, I think, or readily, which is the, uh, the long-term effects of exposure to alcohol. Alcohol can cause liver disease, of course. We, I think we're more familiar with that in terms of fatty liver, cirrhosis. Uh, but it's also a level one carcinogen. And so a lot of people don't know that alcohol is in the same category as tobacco smoke and asbestos in terms of its cancer-causing ability. It increases risk of breast cancer in women, for example, at low doses with a dose response curve. So the more you drink, the more likely you are to get cancer of the breast in women. Also in men and women, uh, cancer of the, of the larynx, pharynx and esophagus, as well as stomach, liver and colon. So do you think that there's any safe level of alcohol use? There's not really a safe level, but there is low risk levels. And those low risk levels are defined different for men and women because men and women have different capacities to metabolize alcohol, as well as having different amounts of body water in their body as a proportion of their body weight. So in men, it tends to be more diluted at the same dose than it is for women, where it tends to be more concentrated. But low-risk alcohol use is determined to be no more than one drink a day for a woman and no more than seven drinks a week and no more than 14 drinks a week for a man or no more than two drinks a day. So that's considered low risk alcohol use, not no risk, but low risk. That's you can lower your chances of getting any adverse effects 
from alcohol use. Mostly those effects, of course, would be to do with toxicity-related effects of those three pathways. So if you're drinking at those low levels, it doesn't eliminate risk. You may still have some risk related to the carcinogenic effects of alcohol, for example. It may interact with medications that you may be taking. This is another risk, particularly among elderly people, that can cause interactions of unknown side effects, which can cause exacerbate the effects of those medications and lead to injuries and accidents, for example. So we know that many people are able to adhere to those guidelines that you just went through and that you hear from your primary care physician about, you know, moderate or low risk levels of drinking. For those who are not able to sustain that practice, who, you know, once they start, it's hard to stop. Is it possible to achieve moderation? Or do you think at that point, abstinence is the the only path? Abstinence is the most stable path to change but it's not the only one. So many people are able to, if they're showing signs of heavier drinking that is causing problems, they're able to cut down to lower levels that are less harmful and less problematic for them and others. One of the questions is, you know, can they keep it at the low level successfully over time for months and years if they've shown signs of heavier drinking? It is possible. It's difficult to do. But then again, it's also difficult to abstain completely. So kind of the best marker for that is severity of the level of alcohol involvement and alcohol-related impairment previously. So if you have been more severely alcohol-involved and impaired, that is to say you kind of meet criteria at the moderate severe end of the spectrum for an alcohol use disorder, your chances of being able to turn around and cut down and reduce use successfully and functioning well are lower, you're more likely to be successful and stable by abstaining. If you're at the lower end of the spectrum, at a mild to moderate end of the spectrum, the chances are higher that you'll be able to cut back and uh, use at a lower, less uh, harmful level. Let's talk about a little bit about your work on um, what leads to remission and recovery, what works what people need to reduce their alcohol consumption or quit altogether. And also weave in the fact that you were the lead author of the 2020 Cochrane Review of Evidence on the Treatment of Alcohol Use Disorder. And that was a major piece of work, as all the Cochrane Reviews are, 27 studies, more than 10,000 people, and showed that AA and peer support programs like AA performed as well or better as other usual treatments. Yes, there are many different pathways to recovery. That's the good news. Uh, It's a matter of just for people to find one that works for them. We know that treatment and AA and medications are all helpful. They're all effective for some people, but not for everybody. So it's a matter of finding one that works for you. We also know that for people on the more mild end of the spectrum of alcoholism or alcohol use disorder, Many people are able to stop or cut down successfully and get into remission from the disorder without seeking any kind of outside help. Those individuals who are able to do that tend to be on the milder end of the spectrum. So their life is not so impaired, not so wrecked by alcohol that they're able to kind of shift and moderate and change their life to be able to support remission. People at the severe end of alcohol involvement and alcohol impairment those who are more severely uh, addicted tend to need more support. We have three FDA-approved medications for alcohol use disorder. 
which can be very helpful. Again, not for everybody, but for some people that can help them cut down and stop alcohol use. Usually those are used in combination with other kinds of supports like psychosocial treatments, like cognitive behavioral therapies, relapse prevention therapies, which are available in most treatment facilities. And as you mentioned also, peer support programs like Alcoholics Anonymous, Smart Recovery, Life Ring, Women for Sobriety. There are different flavors of these mutual aid societies and support networks. The advantage of those is that they're freely available, they're highly accessible, and flexible, and they're well suited to supporting remission in the communities in which people live. That's the good news. And we have a lot of these uh, resources around, particularly AA for alcohol use disorder. And as you pointed out earlier, we now have strong evidence that uh, AA works as well or better for less money than other interventions. So it's a very useful, helpful public health standpoint, just given the burden of disease of alcohol-related illnesses. Uh, they can support recovery over time. I think you were quoted as saying, um, to your point about no cost or low cost, that AA and similar programs are the closest thing we have in public health to a free lunch. <laughs> That's right, yeah. Yeah, I like that saying. Uh, I did make it up, yes, because it's true. We don't get many free lunches uh, in society in any sense from a public health or otherwise. But here we have a free, ubiquitous, indigenous recovery support service. And we have a price tag, of course, uh, economic burden associated with alcohol alone of $250 billion a year. That's the price tag we're all paying for alcohol use, heavy alcohol use, which affects people in different ways. That's a lot of collateral damage. Yeah, a lot of cost. A lot of damage, yeah. And those costs are, are spread across healthcare, of course, but criminal justice also, as well as lost productivity, people getting sick and not going to work. There is a huge price tag. So when you have a freebie in the community that's highly ubiquitous and effective, that is good news and we need more things like it. I'm speaking with Dr. John Kelly, a clinical psychologist specializing in the treatment of alcohol and other drug addiction. He was the lead author of the 2020 Cochrane Review that found Alcoholics Anonymous and similar 12-step programs are as effective at achieving abstinence as other common and higher-cost clinical treatments. We'll continue our show in just a minute. We're in a new era of healthcare. New treatments and tests for complex conditions promise to improve health like never before. And these innovations are entering the market faster than ever. Forward-thinking benefits leaders know that not all innovation may benefit employees' whole health, and these leaders are building a whole-person benefits strategy founded on best practices. And they're seeing results, from better outcomes and experiences to better relationships and better costs. More than half of Fortune 50 companies are partnering with AIM Specialty Health, a member of the Carillon family of companies, to lay that foundation of best practice care. Led by a team of physicians, AIM ensures that employees and their families get care that's evidence-based and affordable across today's most complex, costly specialties like oncology, cardiology, and musculoskeletal care. Visit aimspecialtyhealth.com to learn how AIM and Carillon are working with top employers to solve healthcare's most complex challenges together. How can workplaces do more to support people in recovery? I've been thinking about, you know, how 
happy hours are at least as ubiquitous as support programs. We do know that quite a few companies have employee resource groups or other kinds of peer support for people in recovery. And Salesforce, it was just in employee benefit news that they have a uh, something called Soberforce they've gotten started to support employees. But beyond that, what else? Yeah, I think there's some general principles that employers can utilize to help their employees who have an alcohol problem. These have been around for a long time. We've had employee assistance programs, so-called, which were principally designed to help people initially with an alcohol use disorder, alcoholism in the past. And again, these are programs which are designed to provide treatment and recovery-specific support through their employer that their employer understands they're educated about the nature of these disorders and conditions, how they can affect people, what's needed for that person to get healthy again and to get into remission. So being able to provide compassionate support, understanding, but also provide accountability that can be very helpful for people in recovery, to provide flexibility in terms of their work schedule, to be able to attend the kinds of uh, services that they need to be able to achieve and sustain remission across time. And this, of course, is in the interest of the employer, especially if they've invested time in training that person and they are a part of the infrastructure of that employer. So pulling the lens back and looking, you know, big picture, what is the current trajectory in the U.S.? We've got a long history with alcohol from prohibition and celebration and back and forth. Most alcohol is not FDA regulated, as I understand it, even though you've referred to it as a kind of a pharmacological agent. It's, you know, it's regulated by the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms. Is it regulation? Is it more public education? What would it take to significantly reduce the negative impacts of alcohol in the U.S. that you talked about in terms of cost and health? Part of the challenge has been proper public health policy related messaging and information. That's part of it. There's a disinclination, for example, to have labeling, accurate labeling on alcohol containers the way that we do for tobacco. So accurate labeling, you don't mean a food label as the FDA would require. You're talking more about a safety label. Yes, exactly. Now, there is some, you know, labels um, uh, for pregnant mothers, for example. We know that alcohol can damage uh, the fetus and produce um, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder in born children that where a mother has been exposed to alcohol. Um, but there's no labeling, for example, that, that alcohol can cause cancer. It can increase the risk of cancer. The other thing is that alcohol is responsible for most addiction cases in the United States and most middle and high income countries around the world. When I was in uh, London recently, I picked up a packet of um, headache pills that had some codeine and it was over the counter. You could get it over the counter in England. But it says right on the front of the box, warning, this may cause addiction. But it's interesting, isn't it, that 75% of addiction cases in the United States are caused by alcohol, but there's no warning on alcohol containers that this may cause addiction. Again, culturally, we don't like to think of alcohol as an addictive drug and that many of us are using that drug. I think because we don't want to think about it as a drug, we'd rather think about it as there's alcohol, then there's drugs. And so the way that we talk about it, think about it, influences our cultural response, doesn't it? 
when we think about it as not a drug, which of course it is, because it's so enjoyable, people enjoy it, as you said, the happy hour. I mean, what's better than the happy hour, except that for some people, there are many subsequent unhappy hours for them or their loved ones because of, of the happy hour. So not for everybody, but it can cause a lot of heartache and misery in that person and in other people. It can cause addiction, it can cause cancer, it can cause intoxication-related accidents and injuries. Of course, we see this all, all the time, but we don't like to think about it like that. And this is part of the problem. This changed, of course, with tobacco. I can see it changing in the next 50 years as we start to understand more about the effects of alcohol so that the public can be better informed, more accurately informed, about the risks they are taking when they consume that product, just the same as they would hopefully be informed if there were health risks associated with any other product that they put in their body. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we didn't talk at all about binge drinking. And um, my impression is that that starts in maybe in college, people go away from home, they're barely at drinking age or not quite of drinking age. Um, can you define binge drinking? And is that something that people grow out of and stops? Or is that a phenomenon that we're still seeing in older adults? Well, binge drinking is heavy use in a short period. It's formally defined as five drinks within a two-hour period for a man, four drinks within a two-hour period for a woman. That high level of increase in blood alcohol concentration produces uh, intoxication in most people. That leads to disinhibition. It can lead to psychological impairment, of course, which can lead to injuries and accidents, as well as domestic violence and other kinds of violence like that. And how big a problem is that? Well, again, it's really where you look in the population. Now, if you took a broad stroke look, you'd see among young people. So between the ages of 17 and 30, that's where you see the bulk of the heavy drinking. It tends to go down after that uh, developmental period. In most middle and high income countries, um, you see that decrease uh, age, age from a developmental perspective. This is probably because when you're younger, you've got more free time. There's more cultural expectation, social facilitation to engage in heavier alcohol use. Also, younger people are more robust, slightly more robust to the effects. Uh, they can bounce back. They're more resilient. They can bounce back quicker from the negative effects of alcohol. As you get older, that starts to change. Also, there are different responsibilities which come on board, typically developmentally, as people get in a relationship, get to work, or they get serious about work. Um, there's kids coming along potentially. So there's all these other challenges and demands on people's time which reduce the occasion, uh, the freedom, uh, license for alcohol use. So that's what you generally see. For some people, of course, who become addicted, that has a very different trajectory. Not too long ago, you won a Lifetime Achievement Award from the National Council for Mental Wellbeing. Congratulations Thank you. on that. Um, but, you know, Lifetime Achievement Award always kind of creates that feeling of, wait, I'm not done. There's more. What more is there that you'd like to accomplish? Oh, well, there's so much to learn. There's so many people working so hard to make a difference uh, in our understanding of alcohol, other drug use as well, of course, and what we can do to better help people who suffer from these disorders and their families. You know, one of the things I think that's very important is what can we do earlier 
to prevent these cases and the disaster that can happen for people, including loss of life, because this is the third leading cause of preventable death in the United States is alcohol. So what can we do earlier in people's lives to help prevent, to educate younger people about the harms, hazards associated with alcohol and its addictive potential? Uh, For cases, for people who do meet criteria for alcohol use disorder early, to be able to intervene earlier, to have those conversations early and often to help shorten the course of alcoholism and alcohol use disorder. We do know, for example, that in studies that have looked at this, that the earlier you begin the conversation around the harms and hazards of alcohol use for people who are showing signs and symptoms of an alcohol use disorder, the shorter the time to remission. So just like other kinds of illnesses and disorders, alcohol use disorder responds to early intervention. You might not see the effects right away. You might not see any change right away in terms of a young person's alcohol use over six months or even six years. But what you do see is that on those, for those people who get those conversations, it's like planting seeds. We're planting seeds which come to fruition earlier in terms of helping those people get into remission relative to those same individuals who do not get those conversations. So I think we need a kind of a longer-term view of the impact of beginning these interventions and and, uh, conversations earlier, particularly for young people, if we're serious about really putting a dent in the incidence and prevalence of these disorders in the population and the harms, the hazards, and the price tag that we're all paying financially. Yeah, I guess I'm reminded of um, like the driver's ed that I went through many years ago. I don't think they do this anymore, but there was a kind of a, you know, a lot of emphasis on all the bad that can happen when you get behind the wheel in a scary movie, things like that. But there could be a more progressive primary prevention strategy for teenagers. Mm-hmm. We want to be realistic. I don't think we need, you know, eggs in frying pans to scare people. But Oh, yes. <laughs> but, um, I think kids are pretty savvy. Uh, sometimes we like to use scare tactics with the idea that this could be you. That rarely works. You know, we need to be smart about what does work and identifying what are the factors and elements which really do help people make healthier choices in their life so that they understand the ramifications One of them has been particularly, you mentioned earlier about the trajectories of harm in COVID, but over the last 10 years, we've seen substantial increases independent of COVID in increases in liver disease and alcohol use disorder, particularly among women. And women are really caught up to men uh, in terms of the harm, sadly, the harms uh, done by alcohol and shown a much bigger increase in relative harms among women as I think they've gotten the message somehow that wine may be good for them. And so they've overdone it and started to incur all kinds of harms and consequences as a result. And that's what we've seen uh, when we look internationally as well. Definitely, I think wine and women is a cultural thing. You know, you see it on T-shirts. Mm-hmm. It was big on some TV shows, Mom's Night Out. Yeah, yeah. a lot of that. Yeah. yeah, and again, all of these things that, you know, Alcohol, other drugs can be fun. They're pleasurable. This is why people use them, of course, because it produces this euphoria and anxiety reduction and disinhibition, the kinds of things the human brain likes. And of course, these things can be fun in moderation, in low levels. But again, we have to be careful because the toxicity is in the dose. 
if you have too much, there's going to be harm incurred. Everybody should be informed about the nature of the harm, and then they can make up their own mind about what they were going to do, but they have to bear the consequences of it. As our final question, if there's a really important takeaway that you'd like the audience to have from this conversation, what would that be? Probably the most important thing to remember is if you have an alcohol problem, an alcohol use disorder, if you suffer from alcohol addiction, the most likely outcome is recovery. That's the good news. It can take maybe three or four or five serious recovery attempts before achieving remission and recovery. But 75% of people with an alcohol use disorder will achieve remission. I don't want to discount the suffering and the premature deaths which occur 100,000 or more per year in the United States from alcohol. But most people will recover from an alcohol use disorder, 75%. So that's the good news. It can take four or five treatment episodes or mutual help episodes before people achieve that remission. But remission is the most likely outcome. Just if you keep trying, keep hanging in there, keep moving forwards, you'll eventually achieve remission. That's going to be the most likely outcome. I've been speaking with Dr. John Kelly, clinical psychologist and the first endowed professor in addiction medicine at Harvard Medical School. For more information on Dr. Kelly's work, go to www.recoveryanswers.org. You can sign up online for a free monthly recovery bulletin. The site also has a feature called Addictionary, a play on the word addiction. It's a dictionary for words related to addiction and recovery with stigma alert warnings. I'm Luann Heinen. This podcast is produced by Business Group on Health with Connected Social Media. If you enjoyed this conversation, please share it with a friend or colleague. 